So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the last four weeks we've been, uh, in, not including Celebration Sunday, last Sunday, um, the four weeks before that we spent looking at this hymn that's recounted in verses 7 through 10, emphasizing or looking most closely at Jesus' prayer. We looked at every single prayer of Jesus that's mentioned in the Gospels. We concluded with this prayer of thanksgiving in Emmaus with the disciples who were there with him. And had multiple intentions in doing that. But the main reason is that the author of Hebrews, at least here, sees these prayers and supplications, these petitions that Jesus, our great high priest, is offering for us as kind of a summation of everything he does for you as your great high priest. So my intention was through those four messages to try to position ourselves where we can see his labors, his heartfelt, deep labors on our behalf as our great high priest, and that our heart would be warmed towards him. That we would see his striving in prayer to the Lord on our behalf, and that we would love him more as we see that. And I hope especially with the last week as we looked at his agony in Gethsemane before going to the cross, that that gave you a sense of this one, who is your great high priest, and how much we ought to respond in love towards him. Additionally, my hope was that it would ignite in our hearts individually and as a church a desire to follow Jesus' example as our great high priest and be committed to prayer. And now we move to the next passages. And it begins a new section, really, in the whole book of Hebrews. And the author explores the depths of this glorious truth of Jesus being your great high priest. But it begins with a warning. It actually concludes the section with a warning as well. But it begins this section that will end in chapter 10 with a strong warning. We should remember before we get into this warning the three exhortations or imperatives that the author of Hebrews has given us so far. Consider Jesus is his first imperative. And then he commands us, hold fast. Let us hold fast. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, exhort one another. We 
underscore all of those. So you need to put yourself back into the framework of this book. This is a call to persevere. This is a call to a congregation or a group of churches where they were teetering on the fence of whether or not this thing about Jesus, this whole life, the Christian life, whether it was really worth it, whether it was really worth suffering, derision, and loss of job, loss of possessions, maybe even loss of life for the sake of Christ. And they're teetering. Maybe we can just go back to Judaism, because Rome and the Jews were okay with that, and maybe we can just have that with the side of Jesus. We can know in our hearts that he is the Messiah, but we won't like be Christian Christians and be a part of this church. Maybe not. Maybe it's not all that important. And so, with those exhortations or those imperatives in mind, we read verses 11 through 14 again. About this, meaning about this whole theology of Jesus being our great high priest, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. As I said, when he says about this, he's referring back to this theology of Jesus being your great high priest. His labors for you as great high priest. What sets his ministry to you as your great high priest as different from the high priests of old. How is Jesus different from Aaron and the sons of Aaron, who were our great high priests and the people of God before Jesus came? What does Jesus do, and how does he minister to you that's different from the Old Testament sacrificial system? That's an important question. Because while there are similarities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, there are differences that are important to keep in mind as well. And you need to know them as a Christian. You really do need to know them. They form the contours of what it means to be a Christian, how you relate to God in the first place. About this, this whole thing, we have much to say. About this is also him being a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We haven't had time to get to that yet, but it's a really big deal. He spends at least two chapters dealing with this. It's a really big deal. We don't have time to get into it yet, but about that as well, we have much to say. And it influences how you think about Christ, how you relate to God, how you even think about your own sins, how you think about repentance and forgiveness and growth. All of those things are influenced by this theology. He says, about this we have much to say. Why? Why is there much to say? Does this author, the author of Hebrews, just have a very unique theological hobby horse? This is one of the reasons I know for certain, or think very assertively, that Paul did not write Hebrews. Because hardly anywhere in all of Paul's letters does he even mention this idea of Jesus being our great high priest. And this is the main idea for the author of Hebrews. It, it, it forms his whole contours of thought. Is this just his hobby horse where he just wants to tell everybody about it and he wants to get at the heart of it and let everyone know? Is this just something only his hearers need to hear? Or do we need to hear this as well? If you believe what the Bible says about itself, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, teaching, for training, for correction, and rebuke, so that the man of God would be equipped, competent, for every good work. You need this theology of Christ as your great high priest in order to be all that God wants you to be. And hopefully, as we go through the coming chapters, you'll begin to see exactly why. The massive yield you get from seeing Jesus this way. 
There's much to say about it because it's a big idea and it's really important. And he says it in the coming chapters. This much, this much he has to say is essentially the bulk of the rest of this book until about chapter 10. And then the rest, after chapter 10, is just implications. The book of Hebrews, and particularly the theology of Jesus as our great high priest, has been called by a theologian by the name of D.A. Carson, the most important book or part of Scripture in helping us put all the Bible together. It makes sense at all and seeing how it all works and how it's all interrelated. But it's more than just the theology of it. His audience, his intended receivers of this book, are teetering on abandoning Christ. They're not holding fast, or they're at least at risk of not holding on fast to Christ anymore. And so his response to that danger that he sees in them, that danger that he's identified in them, that danger even towards apostasy, which we're going to see in the coming verses, not this week, but next, Lord willing, this danger of thinking that you're in Christ, feeling secure, and then things begin to happen, and you begin to distance yourself away from him, and then all of a sudden you're denying Christ altogether. That danger, his response to that danger, is this theology of Jesus as your great high priest. And so there's much to say. But, or in, it is hard to explain. We'll see in a little bit exactly why, another main reason why it's hard to explain. But the language in this text isn't just saying, I'll just tell you what he says, I've read it twice now, but the dullness of hearing, that's what we're going to focus on mainly. But it's not only because of this dullness of hearing, it is hard to explain because it's intrinsic to the theology itself. This is a big and difficult and nuanced idea. The truth that you need to hear and know in order to persevere to the end is hard. It's difficult. It is not easy truths that will sustain you. Many of you, including myself, need to have a gut check often. Are you resting your faith on coffee mug truths? If you can fit it on a coffee mug in any font that's sizable enough to read, it's probably not going to sustain you when things go terribly wrong. Or when you're faced with a challenge in a loved one's life that you can't explain and you don't know what to say. It's not that those truths are wrong, and it's not that they should not be important to you, but they're not enough. Here's an example from my life. This phrase, seek ye first the kingdom of God. You can put that on a pocket mug, you can put that on a bumper sticker, and it should transform your lives. And since my earliest memories of beginning to read the Bible faithfully, 15, 16, or 17, that has changed everything about my life. Gradually, to be sure, but it does change everything. And this isn't going to be a sermon about seek ye first the kingdom of God, or else, you know, I don't stop myself now, I'll get too excited about it, and it will become one. But here's the point. If someone comes to me and says, why did God let my father die? I can't respond by saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's true, but it doesn't answer the problem. There are more complex problems. Someone comes to me and says, I had a miscarriage. I can't just respond by saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's true, and they need to, and even in that moment, they need to hear that truth, but that's not enough. Think of the example of Job and his friends. You remember the story? Everything in Job's life is ruined, including his health. And his four friends come to him, and they begin sitting with him. They, they sit for a long time and don't say anything. That's probably what they should have kept doing. 
But then, if you look closely at Job, they say true things. They just misapply it to Job's situation. They don't understand all that's going on. So they take smaller, more simplistic truths and apply it to a too complex situation. And God responds by saying they have not spoken truthfully about me because they misapplied different or the wrong truth at the time. So we need this truth. The problems and difficulties of life and what's going on in your heart and your striving to know the Lord and the problems you face while coming upon that, the difficulty in seeing God rightly, you need this truth of Jesus being your great high priest with all the nuances and side items that come along with that. And in putting your whole Bible together, there are specific problems that only that truth will help you through. There are glories that you cannot see unless you know it. But it's difficult. It is complex. And it is a mature truth. And it is hard to explain. But the complexity and maturity of this truth is not the main reason it's difficult to explain. He tells us what the main reason is. Since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. This text fascinates me for a number of reasons. The first reason being he's speaking believers. He's looking at a church, people who are adhering to Christ, they're worshiping him, and they're teetering maybe. Some of them are maybe mature, more mature than others. But this is a group that has expressed faith in Christ. He's not writing them off completely. He's appealing to them as believers, and he says, you have become dull of hearing. Is that you? Maybe. It's possible. So as the author speaks, as you read this verse, just let it apply to you if it does apply to you. And if you think that you're in a place in your walk with Christ where you cannot become dull of hearing, then you're probably becoming dull of hearing. So know that this is a danger for you to fall into as a Christian. And if you've been a Christian following the Lord faithfully for a while, longer than maybe just a few years, you can probably point back to times in your life where you can say for certain, I became dull of hearing for a while. Right there. That was characteristic of me. So he's speaking to the whole church generally, and maybe there are people in that group who aren't dull of hearing, but he has an alarming observation that there is a large ratio of people who have become dull of hearing in this congregation. And so he just says to all of them as a blanket statement, you have become dull of hearing. The second reason this is fascinating is that this is something that can happen already kind of touched on this. He says, you have become dull of hearing. So there was a time for these people where they weren't necessarily dull of hearing, but he says, you have become this way. The third reason, this should be obvious, is that he's not talking about physical hearing. He's not talking about those who need hearing aids. It implies that there is a sense, like a, like Taste, touch, sight. There is a sense, a spiritual sense of healing, uh, of hearing, rather, that needs to be taken care of with more diligence and daily care than any other of your senses. If you want to turn to Matthew, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. This is a haunting passage for me, and it's, I'll just read it. Beginning in verse 10, Matthew 13, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. You have spiritual eyes. You have spiritual ears. Many of us, especially those of us who are younger, we wake up and we don't think about how great it is to be able to see clearly and to hear clearly. And so we don't have a daily routine in our lives to maintenance these physical senses. But every person, without exception, has spiritual ears that have a tendency to become dull. Regardless of how old you are, regardless of how long you've been in the faith, spiritual entropy begins to happen and your ears become dull and your eyes become dim. And unless you commit in the ways that he's going to show us here in a bit to work against that dullness of hearing and that dimness of sight, it will happen to you too. So we'll spend the rest of our time answering this question. What causes dullness of hearing? And then the other side of the coin, what can we do to prevent this dullness of hearing? This is the reason I say before preaching every single Sunday, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I'm pleading with you and pleading with the Holy Spirit to give you spiritual hearing, that your ears would be undulled, that we all, would begin to hear the very word of God and that it would begin to change us and that dullness of hearing wouldn't prevent you, would not prevent me from the seed of the word going deep in our hearts and bearing fruit. So, there are probably many other passages we could go to in scripture to talk about this dullness of hearing. We'll just stick to this text and I think draw some conclusions about what leads to this dullness of hearing and the cure later on. The first cause of dullness of hearing is this, not keeping up. That by this time, you ought to be teachers. So there's a rate of increase, a rate of growth that is expected of one who's faithfully following the Lord. Maybe it's a range. Obviously, some of us have greater measures of God's grace in our lives to know and to understand, but there is an expected, at least minimum, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You've been in the Lord long enough to come to a place where you can tell a new believer some important things about the Lord, but you're not there yet. You haven't kept up. This is kind of what Paul says in Galatians 5. You are running well. Who hindered you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You're at a good pace. You're running well. What, what derailed you? Here's an example from my own life. Have you ever missed an algebra class? I took one week off from college algebra and came back, and I had no idea what was going on. Right? Making A's, everything, every quiz, was knocking everything out. I think I missed one problem all up until that point in the middle of the semester. I came back, B's and C's. A lot of A's, but I had B's and C's, and that's a problem, right? If you miss out on something, your rate of increase is ruined. Many of you might be able to point back at a time in your, your own life when you were making progress. You were making strides forward. The Lord was opening his word to you. You were devoted to the word. And you were reading other people to be helpful and help you understand what was going on in the word. And you had a desire to do so. But now, or back then, something happened and it derailed you and you're no longer on that pace, no longer on that 
trajectory. My encouragement to you right now is keep up. You can make up for that lost time. You can repent and recommit yourself to that progress. But being lethargic towards progress in the Word, being lazy towards progress in knowing the Lord is no little thing, and it does have moral implications. <coughs> the second cause of dullness appearing is this. It's implied, okay? It's that we're not thinking of others. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers. And I understand this is implied, but it, you can prove this from many other places in Scripture. There is a danger in wanting to teach when you're not ready. That is a very real danger. Wanting to teach others when you're not ready, when you have glaring flaws in your theology and your life, wanting to teach others. But there is also a danger in wanting to learn about God and not wanting to proclaim what you see. And this does not mean that everyone in the church should lead a class or a Bible study or a home group or preach. But everyone, according to Paul in Colossians 3.16, should be teaching one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. This is something that you owe to your brother and sister in Christ. And here's why there's a danger. Because if you're not others-focused, if, if it doesn't result in you wanting to tell others... And that is at least some evidence that the truth that you're getting is not the full picture. And this dullness appearing comes from not getting exposed to the full picture. One of the pastors I um, have been influenced by quite a bit, um, there's a chapter in scripture that he just couldn't get his arms around, and so he went on a sabbatical, a whole sabbatical, to do nothing other than to understand this chapter of Scripture. So he's off by himself for a couple of months, reading other books about it, and reading it, memorizing it, studying it over and over and over, and he said something surprised him. The great sense that he got from the, that chapter was, I, the God of this chapter, will not merely be studied. I will be proclaimed. And that's when he realized his call was to be a pastor. Because God is not satisfied for you to just have him all to yourself and to know him fully. If you know the very true God who is there, you cannot help but tell others. Starting with your brothers and sisters. The third cause of dullness. Forgetting what you have been taught. He says, you need someone to teach you against the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need someone to teach you again. We are a forgetful people. When I read the Exodus, and I see the people complain and write over and over and over. And it may have been just recently that you read what God did to deliver them, you think, don't you remember? Don't you remember what God did just a few chapters ago in freeing you from Egypt? Don't you remember all that? And then you think of your life, and you could give yourself the same counsel. Don't you remember? Don't you remember what God did? How faithful he was? Don't you remember the cross? We forget. How do we forget? Many of us don't pay attention in the first place. Many of us don't decide from the get-go to pay attention and remember. We become like the man who looks at his reflection in the mirror and then go our way and forget what we saw. We may spend time reading scripture, we may spend time under the preaching of the word, we may spend time in Sunday school, but we don't remember it. And it might be that it's too painful to remember because the clear mirror of God's word reveals who we really are, and we don't like the picture. So it's 
not just that we're forgetful, it's maybe that we're willful in forgetting. Too painful. Sometimes we want different teachers. Look at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. I don't know if there's a passage in Scripture that is more true of the times than this passage. Second Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 5, I'm sorry. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Spurgeon wrote this, Many hearers lose much blessing through criticizing too much and meditating too little. Filled with the same spirit of contrariety, men of this world still depreciate the ministers whom God sends them and profess that they would gladly listen if different preachers could be found. Nothing can please them. Peter is too blunt. Apollos is too flowery. Paul is too argumentative. Timothy is too young. James is too severe. John is too gentle. And then the parable of the sower, going back to Matthew 13. This is the interpretation of the parables. Here, then, the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Part of the reason we're forgetful is that the enemy is at work trying to keep you to, from seeing the glory of Christ. This was what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed keeps bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. Cares of this world, the work of the enemy, and tribulation work against you, remembering and taking thee the word of God. The fourth reason for this dullness of hearing is a lack of reverence for the basics. Okay, there's a both-and dynamic here. He's rebuking them or calling them to move beyond the milk, but he's not minimizing the importance of the milk. He calls it later the foundation. So you got to have it, but you can't stay there. But for many of us, maybe because we see it as basic or simple, we don't have a reverence towards the basics foundation that should be Christ and repentance from dead works, as he says, and faith towards God and all those things. That's what the foundation should be, and we maybe don't want that to be our foundation. We're fascinated with side issues. We don't understand what depth means. Maturity and growing and deepening your understanding of the word is taking those things that are the very foundation <coughs> and letting those truths build up into the house. It's like when you're training for any type of martial art or fighting skill. The first thing they teach you how to do is to breathe. How do you breathe? 
And many of us would think, well, I don't want to breathe. I've been breathing my whole life. Right? I'm alive, so I've been breathing my whole life. I don't need to be taught how to breathe. Yes, you do. And many of us, because we are not willing to be taught how to breathe, the most important foundational principles of our faith, we have not regarded them highly enough. These are the oracles of God. You don't need to be told again about the gospel. But yes, you do. We also get fascinated, as I said, with side issues. One of the ways this manifests is that we trust the wisdom of the world more than we trust the basic principles of the word of God, the oracles of God. Relying on the world's categories will let you or allow you to cut out or to leave behind the implications of these basic principles of the oracles of God. And so because you have a fractured foundation or a halfway foundation, because you've replaced part of that foundation with the wisdom of the world, you can't build on that foundation. And so you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God because you did not treat those basic principles with enough reverence. Here's just a few examples. Nature versus nurture. Is the problem with humanity that our situation is bad? We have war, famine, disease. We get old, things break in our body. We're fighting with each other. There's economic pressures. Is that our problem? And if we just got ourselves into a better situation, if we got ourselves in a better family life, if we got ourselves in a better house with less problems, we got ourselves into a better job with a less oppressive boss. We got our situation, our nurturing better, then we would improve. Is that how it is? No. Your problem, brothers and sisters, is our nature. You and I have rebelled against the God of the universe. That is your problem, and that is my problem. And all of the things outside are merely symptoms of those things. Sin is the issue. With any interpersonal, relational, or personal issue, sin is the issue. And that is what the basic principles of the oracles of God would show you. But because you've accepted the wisdom of the world and put that in place of the foundation, you can't grow. And there are so many other examples, and this isn't a sermon about that. Maybe we'll have a chance one day. But just know that if you accept the world's wisdom and let that be foundational for you, the basic principles of the oracles of God cannot be foundational for you because it's either or. They conflict. The wisdom of this world is foreign to the wisdom of God. We don't, all, this is the second reason, third, fourth, I don't keep track of the things I say here, of why we don't let the, the basic principles of the Word of God be as significant as they ought to be. We don't know what we're holding. We don't have the degree of reverence and joy and delight in this. This is the word of God. The very God who created the universe and has existed for all time has spoken, and this is it. This is such a great treasure. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God endures forever. Do you know what you're holding in your lap? What are these basic principles? He's going to tell us a little bit about that when we get to the next verses. But that's part of the reason why we spent so many weeks going through the Baptist faith and message, article by article, and sometimes spending multiple weeks on different articles, because those encapsulate, it's an attempt to codify what are the basic principles of the oracles of God. Let's lay a foundation, and let's 
rightly regard that foundation with the reverence that we need for it. The fifth reason for this dullness of hearing is that we're not skilled in the word. He says you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. There is a skill that enables you to know this. It is not innate. Every person should be able to know the Word of God, and everyone can, but your ability to rightly divide the Word of Truth is something that is a learned skill. So we need training, and we need help, and this is one way that we can be sure <coughs> that the majority of people don't really understand what they're holding when they open the Bible because there's so little training that goes on. We presume that it's an easy book. I'll just say here, I'm going to say it at the end, a really good place to start is just buying a really good study Bible. Reading the Bible, reading the notes, reading the introductory portions, reading the articles, Get a really good study Bible and just get to work. The sixth reason for dullness of hearing is that we don't see or really live out the implications of the word. He says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness, that's an interesting phrase. Jesus called it the word of the kingdom. And he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They're synonymous. It's not just truths. We're not just improving our understanding of, let's say, ancient history. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It is the word of righteousness. One of the many places we could go is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that even a close approximation of your life? Many of us are mean people, cold, impatient, bitter, and anxious. You may think you know a great deal about the Bible. You may know a lot of facts. But if you see none of this fruit of the Spirit in your life, or it is hardly a close approximation, then you're doing it wrong. Because it is the word of righteousness, and when the word is received and takes root in your heart, it changes you. And you begin living a life that pleases God. You believe in God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Theology, just for theology's sake, is demonic. It has to change your life. And if it's not changing your life, that means you've got a skewed picture. It's, in, it's incomplete. You're missing key portions. Because if you knew the truth, truly, if you had received it really in the depths of your heart, it would bear fruit. These are not little matters. These are not small issues. This is the main thing. And this is how the Spirit works in your life. The Spirit will come and He will glorify me and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will guide you into all truth. You want to know God? You want to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? You want to know Him and grow in your knowledge of Him? The Spirit uses the Word of God to bring change in your life. That's it. The seventh reason for this dullness in this text is the bad kind of childishness. He says, since he is a child. This is echoed in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So childlike faith is good. 
right? We're told that we must become like one of these little children in coming to Christ. Childlike faith is good, but childish thinking is bad. Childlike humility is good, but childish behavior, if you're an adult, is bad. Childlike eagerness is good, but childish impatience is bad. A childlike hunger is good, but a childish palate is bad. You need these basics. You need the milk. You need that foundation. It's not that the milk in and of itself is bad. He never says anything bad about the milk in this analogy. But the idea of an adult needing to go back to a diet of milk because he does not know how to feed himself is meant to be jarring to us. It's a weird image of an adult who is supposed to now be eating solid food needing to go on a diet of <coughs> milk. That's the image he wants in your mind. This is what the author is saying to us here. You need to grow up. Being childish, the bad kind, in your walk with the Lord makes you dull of hearing. So how can we fix this? What is the solution to this dullness of hearing? Now, obviously, it's basically the opposite of everything we've already said, but the text answers it as well. If you go back to Hebrews, the end of chapter 5, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. First, we need to understand there is such a thing as Christian maturity, and we need to go after it. He says solid food is for the mature. You shouldn't just want to be a Christian only. You should want to be a mature Christian, and there is such a thing as Christian maturity, and it is something that you can grow in. Becoming dull of hearing can be a result of not wanting to pursue Christian maturity or maybe not even knowing what it is. He's going to mention maturity later, so what we're going to do here for a few minutes is talk about what Christian maturity is. Let me say it this way. All other forms of maturity come with a lot of benefits. Maybe financial, maybe your standing in society. But the way of maturity in Christ is often ridiculed, and it's often not financially profitable. This is how Jesus says it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is not talking about your cross to bear. Reason he mentions his cross as an execution instrument is to say, This is what it means to deny yourself, even to the point of death, that you would be so far away from living life for yourself that it is literally like picking up your cross and following Jesus to Golgotha. Deny yourself. That is Christian maturity. Die to yourself. Mortify the flesh. That is the path of maturity. And this is all through the Word. <coughs> and because this growth and maturity is not happen happening, we often allot so much time to other things in our lives. We often don't have any time to work on maturity in Christ. Do you know how much work and prayer and thought and scripture it takes to be able to deny yourself in a moment where your flesh is screaming out for something else? You don't stumble into that type of holiness, brothers and sisters. It takes work, striving, pleading with the Lord to change your heart so when the temptation comes or when the opportunity for holiness comes that you're able to deny yourself and do what is righteous. The second way we fix this dullness, or the proper way to grow in maturity, is training in discernment. 
He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. You have to take time to train in this. This isn't, again, something you stumble into. No one stumbles into deep understanding of the Word of God. No one happens to wake up in the morning and all of a sudden is discerning. How do we train our powers of discernment? Through the Word. And he also says, this is the third way that we combat this dullness, by constant practice. This can't be for you, brothers and sisters, a once a week thing. I obviously want you here in this room on Sunday mornings listening to the preached word. I need to hear this sermon as much as you do. Many more. But this is a daily exercise to train ourselves to constantly practice so that our powers of discernment would be trained, that we could grow in maturity. I've mentioned Colossians 3.16 already, but it bears mentioning again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. An hour, one day a week, isn't letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This takes meditation, this takes reading, this takes attention. Just like the Bereans in Acts 17, they examined the scriptures daily to make sure that what the Apostle Paul was saying was biblical. Constant practice. Is that a phrase that would stand over your life when it comes to the Word of God? Constantly practicing. For while bodily training is of some value, training in godliness is of value in every way. So many of us devote so much time to so many other pursuits, and we're not training in the Word of Righteousness. We're training our powers of discernment. The fourth way that we combat this dullness is to distinguish between good and evil, to establish a true biblical worldview. Understand this, brothers and sisters, there are no morally neutral ideas. We're training ourselves to distinguish between good and evil, not good, neutral, and evil. Every idea that's out there is supposed to be captured and submitted to the knowledge of Christ, according to Paul. Everything that you think, everything that you hear, every idea that comes across the radio waves or in a book or in a magazine or the news network, you hear has moral value. It's either evil or it's good. And you need to have a biblical worldview, mainly in saying that ideas are either good or evil. There's not just stuff. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God, and anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So any idea you think, any idea that comes into your mind, if it's not proceeding from faith or based on faith, it's sin. It's evil. Any idea or wisdom of this world, again, that comes without faith or is brought to you not on the basis of faith, that's evil. That's a biblical worldview beginning of that. Next way we combat this dullness. We leave what has been built in place. He says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. The flavor of this term, leave, is not derision. It's basically letting it be what it is and move forward. The idea or the analogy is the foundation of a house. How livable is a slab once it's poured? You may set up your tent on top of the slab and have an okay time, but then once it rains, it's perfectly level, and so water's going to get in your tent. A slab is not very livable, but how sturdy is a house without a foundation? That's the idea here. Leave the elementary principles. Stop living in a tent on top of your slab and let the house be built. Build your house on that foundation. The next way is to pursue maturity. We talked about what Christian maturity is, denying yourself, pursuing Christ even to the point of death. But we must pursue it. And regardless of how far you think you've come in your maturity and knowing Christ, there's still further to go. And you can see this in Philippians. Go to Philippians 3. I want you to see this. 
we have read before. But I have never come to this text, read it again, and not been moved. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had in his former life in Judaism, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Paul, you know Christ. You're, you're an apostle. You saw him. He's healed you. He's released you from prison. You've healed people through his power, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, but by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of death. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's the upward call. You know Christ? You can know him more. Can you echo that with Paul? I've counted everything as lost that I might know him. I want to pursue Christian maturity so I can know Jesus. Let's go on to maturity. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And lastly, how to combat this dullness is don't start over from scratch. And don't start a second foundation. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about washings. The word there is actually the same word for baptism. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. Those are all true things. And that could be headings for a book on theology, on Christian theology. But he's saying, let that be your foundation and let's move on to maturity. So don't lay it again and don't lay this second foundation. You don't need something else. Let that be sufficient as your slab and build your house. And he ends with an encouragement. And this we will do if God permits. Everything I've said sounds like a lot of work. To me too. This is this is a high and glorious upward call of Christ to pursue maturity in this way and to know him and to treat the word like it ought to be treated in your life. It's a lot of work, but you need to be with this one little phrase, be amazed at the balance between utter dependency and inadequacy versus confidence and boldness. Only if God permits will we do this will we grow in maturity <coughs> but this we will do we can this growth in maturity is possible there's freedom and joy in this life of grace that we're only going to make progress if God is willing but he is willing so let's get after it and also just to encourage us as we look at this text he does move on to the mature teachings. He rebukes them at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, saying that it's hard to explain because they become dull of hearing. He calls them to maturity, and then he gets on to explain what is hard to explain. So this isn't something for you that needs to take year after year after year after year, or even months. You can make a lot of progress in a few short weeks, dedicating yourself to this. God is faithful. So just a few points of application. 
It is up to God. We will only make progress if he grants it to us. So what should we do? If that's true, that if only if God is willing will we make this progress, we should pray. Really, that is first and foremost, item number one in the life of the believer. Even your growth and maturity in Christ is something that you can only do if God is willing. So pray. And also, put yourself, as it's been said, under the waterfall of God's grace, his means of grace in your life. As I've said before, get a good study Bible. Find a brother or sister in Christ who is just a few steps in front of you in maturity, and fight along with them in this pursuit of maturity. There are a myriad of helpful books that can give you insights over, over the hundreds and thousands of years of the history of the church that will help you know the Bible more and know the Lord. And after we've done everything, and after we've put ourselves under every waterfall of grace that we can find, we still pray. So it's only fitting that we conclude that way. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this challenge, this text that is difficult and calls us to a type of work and a type of living that honors you. I pray that we would take the opportunity in our days, we would structure our calendars daily, weekly, and monthly around this desire to be trained in the word of righteousness. Help us. It is only by your grace that we can make any progress. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.